Hi, and welcome back to The K-Hole. I'm Merit Kay, and joining me this week is a podcaster, author, lecturer, sex workers' rights advocate, uh, multi-hyphenate, I would say, uh, Connor Habib. Hi. Hi. Thanks for joining me. <laughs> it's nice to talk with you. I, I was realizing before we started the show that um, I kind of... In some weird way, I don't know how to talk with people unless I'm on a podcast anymore, which is really horrible. Um, (laughs) Because Uh I was like, as soon as we start, we're going to have the best conversation, but I don't quite know what to say right now. (laughs) So I'm glad we're in it now. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think quarantine has done funny things to all of us in terms of our ability to just have conversations and... I think everyone has this fear that they're going to go to a party after whenever that is and just have no idea how to act. Um, But that's the beauty of podcasts is that we can just have conversations. (laughs) This is actually why I started this show is because I missed the kind of conversations that happened Mm. uh, when you were hanging out with, with friends and it was like two in the morning and people were just riffing. And I I know sometimes that kind of talk, I think it's just like unfairly maligned as like stoner talk or like drunk talk. But I think there it's really fascinating sometimes. And there's people, that was a car horn. Um, <laughs> I think it's fascinating. I think people let their guards. <laughs> no, this is just a comedy routine on me now. This is just a prank show. It's like the person who keeps driving away as you're trying to get uh-huh, into the car. <laughs> exactly. Just Lucy taking away that football. Um, people have interesting conversations when they're when their guards are down, when they're up late, when they've been, you know, doing drugs or just when they're exhausted. And and that's sort of what this show is supposed to be about. And Mm. Uh, I know that you have you've run a show called Against Everyone for a few years at this point. I think. Yeah, I think I think it's a it's getting on to three years now. Wow. Or, or maybe it's a little over three years. Yeah. I mean, I'm almost at 150 episodes now, so that's a lot. Wow! Congrats, and just like some pretty amazing guests on that show. I was looking through, and. Uh, just some really cool, interesting people. And um, how do you describe what that show is? Yeah, I mean, for me, it's big talk instead of small talk. So in some ways, it's actually really aligned with what you're saying, because um, I think that those stoner questions or those late night questions or whatever, they're unfairly... um, if I dare I say quarantined off from the rest of our lives. And, you know, I, I think they're the questions we should really explore together instead of just dismiss. And so what I try to do is, you know, frame a conversation with, you know, as with big questions as the kind of like buoys through and just go deep and not, not ever really pull back that actually just go deeper and deeper. And so I try to have those conversations with people that A, I've wanted to talk to my whole life um, or are sort of like new discoveries to me or people I think are doing really interesting and worthwhile stuff in the world. So, you know, I mean, I had like Ian Mackay from Fugazi who started Discord Records on the show, right? Like just lifelong hero of mine. Or I had this philosopher, Franco Bifo Berardi, um, who is sort of newer to me in the past, you know, four years or whatever. Um, or I had, you know, Abby Martin, who's, you know, done war zone journalism and does a lot of uh leftist uh investigative journalism. So it could be all through that. Or I've had paranormal investigators or whatever too. But the the point is like that, you know, it's big talk, not small talk. Because I, I get invited on shows, as I'm sure you have, it's like you get on and you really do want to have that small talk too sometimes. You do want to have that conversational, it's just fun kind of thing. But the thing that drives me a little crazy is how often 
just when we're getting somewhere really good, it gets sort of, you know, shut down. Mm. And um, that always bothered me, not in podcast, just in life as well. And, um, you know, and I think it's like, yeah, the stoner question thing. If you want to say something like, is the food in the refrigerator really there uh, when you're not looking at it, you know, when you don't open the refrigerator door, then people ridicule a question like that. But that's a really interesting question. You know, I mean, certainly like scientists find that interesting. Philosophers find that interesting. Why do we have to stop talking about it? You know, um, I mean, just also like asking what is God or, you know, where's the world going or those sorts of things. That's all really important to me. And so I also try to make it clear, you know, for the audience, because sometimes those questions can lead to really sort of insider baseball um, answers where you're just going down these theoretical pathways where if, you know, the person, the audience hasn't read Michael Hart and Antonio Negri's like all their books on empire and politics and, <laughs> and you know, philosophy and class analysis and all that kind of stuff, they're not going to get a lot of it. And so that's where I pull back is just to explain or help explain and clarify for the audience what's going on. Why do you think some of these questions have gotten this reputation as not being very serious or um, being distractions or um, not really being the kind of thing that people talk about? Is it, mm. uh, is it just that we have sort of a, a common sense rationalist worldview that sort of brackets them as like, nonsense is it that like these kinds of questions are like seen as uh really private matters in like american you know uh tradition um is it that there is like a uh a distrust of sort of anything with like a whiff of spirituality or, or religion as being um, like a con or maybe just the domain of like the far right? Like, <laughs> what, what, what do you think is- What's why? all of that? <laughs> right, okay. You just gave like a ton of really good answers for why, <laughs> why it's so. I mean, I think it's, yeah. I mean, I, I think all of that is true and- the effect of all that being true um, is that we end up really restricting ourselves on how much we can change the world and how much we can change ourselves and really reshape the structures we live in because those big questions are what lead us to big answers. And some of the answers might seem impossible or absurd or ridiculous because we're just trying to imagine and strive for those answers, but they end up really leading us into interesting new territory. And, you know, it's like the terms being set for us, it's so comfortable. I mean, why do I watch eight bajillion episodes of like Top Chef and Hell's Kitchen and <laughs> that kind of stuff, like cook these cooking shows, which have the same exact format with minor variation? from episode to episode. And it's because that's the sort of exhaustion mind, you know? You mm -hmm. watch that and you're like, because you're exhausted, the slightest blip of variation feels like a huge difference. But in fact, you know, that's just to comfort you. That's just to not make you... <laughs> I don't know, like completely feel like a loser, I guess. So you have this slight variation. I mean, you know, video games, it's like what, what, especially with old Nintendo games, it was always, there was, you know, on a platform game, it was like there was one level mm -hmm. and then the next level was exactly the same, but the enemies just had different skins basically. Right, you know? right. And, um, <laughs> but, you know, and so it was that sort of thing as well. And, you know, it's not that it's not gratifying. It's not that it's not fun. But I think that that's how we run our lives. I mean, how many websites do most people go to now? Whereas, you know, I love Joanne McNeil, who was on my show. She wrote an amazing book called Lurking. And she 
has this whole thing about when the internet started, remember you actually would search, like mm. you would look through, you would browse, you would, it was so free roving and strange and you didn't know where you were going to end up. And now everybody just goes to like the same five sites and that's it. And um, it's that marginal difference that is so comforting and that stops us from changing things, that stops us from developing our, ourselves, our culture, our politics, our economy. And so, um, you know, I'm sure some of that's calculated on the part of the people that run culture and politics and the economy. <laughs> um, uh, and I'm sure some of it's just us running out what feels comfortable for us in our lives because we're exhausted because there's lots of shit going on that makes life hard. say to someone who looks at this stuff from the outside who looks at you know questions of like, broadly speaking philosophical questions like metaphysical questions and and says okay well that's all well and good but these are individual level distractions or accommodations that are going to help you live within these structures that are harmful and the what we need to do is change these structures and all of this self-help stuff all of this mysticism stuff is for people to make money off of and uh and comfort people like i feel like that is in not uncommon Mm -hmm. progressive or leftist position and how, how would you respond to that yeah that is definitely one of the critiques i mean i think it's for me it's always been you do the on the ground work and you have a vision i mean i don't i don't understand why they're mutually exclusive and we've seen how much of a failure organizing can be when it's not attached to or aiming for a vision you know, I mean, after all, aren't most leftists are aiming for some kind of, you know, socialist change, um, some sort of, you know, Marxism or communism, some sort of class, some some vision that was handed to them um, or developed over time, you know, through collaboration by people who had considered these things, you know, and it's just about how do you want to draw the vision into reality. I do think that there are certainly people who decide to languish around in these questions, mm. um, you know. But if <laughs> it, you know, if to the extent that it doesn't help anybody, I mean, I think that the the really important thing to do is to figure out what's in it for you, what's in it for humanity, and what's in it for the spiritual world or the cosmos or whatever, whatever what you want to say that. Um, so I, I think when you get those things lined up, you're lining up your desires and your ethics and your morals. It, most people are lopsided one way or the other. And that's why you see so much, um, you know, cruel organizing, <laughs> like austere organizing politics mm. that don't take people's feelings or desires or pleasure into account. And then they expect that to just all sort out on the other side of the revolution or something like that. It doesn't work that way, you know? Um, or you have people that are, yeah, like the, the critique you just leveled where they're just really super spiritual people, but then they end up not doing any organizing, not doing any on the ground work. Um, and of course there are people that are just in it um, for themselves and, uh, you know, stand up at a DSA meeting because they like the way it makes them feel, but aren't really committed to the cause to humanity or, and they don't have any morals or anything like that. So I think it's just really important to line those three things up. And it, if we can do that, then we have something really profound. Then we actually have like a whole picture of, you know, a, a whole picture <laughs> that we can work with instead of just 
taking action or just theorizing or just looking at my own self-interest and my own desires. As soon as you cut out one of those or two, <laughs> you're, you're, you're screwed. I mean, that's why revolutions fail again and again and again, you know, for, for multiple reasons. And they're crushed often under the heels of fascists or other groups who do align those things or, or try to. And it's so, so I'm not saying that aligning those things automatically brings you to having the right perspective, not right, at all. Right. I'm just saying that if you want to go somewhere <laughs> with mm -hmm. what you're doing, it's important to align those perspectives, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I found uh, a quote on, on your site. I think it was from one of the, one of, the most recent episodes, maybe the most recent episode of Against Everyone, where uh, you say that uh, I sometimes think the, about the concept of world change, of political and economic change is getting ahead of ourselves because we haven't even begun to consider ourselves, consider what it means to be human, what thought is, what thinking is, and what consciousness is. And I think that's a really great point that you mentioned earlier, which is that a lot of the people who are we're creating these frameworks that we operate with now, um, what you know, political theorists, philosophers, were thinking about these things, <laughs> and uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> for whatever reason, you know, maybe we've decided they already did that, so we don't need to, or the philosophy stuff was sort of outdated, you know, 18th, 19th century stuff that like science has kind of taken over. We don't really need that part anymore. Um, but for whatever reason, we don't always want to, to do that stuff because it feels like too spooky, I think. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But it's, it's like, it was part and parcel of that stuff for those people. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, so just to that quote, um, I'm glad that I'm glad that you brought that up. I mean, if we can't hold a single thought, like if I tell you to think of a cat or a dog or whatever, you know, like think about it. Now, of course, you can think of it, an image comes to mind, but if I say think about that for three minutes, mm. <laughs> you're going to find yourself somewhere else really quickly. I mean, just think, I just want to consider how weird that is, that we have trouble even holding a single thought, and yet we want to hold political movements, social movements in place um, to the point where they change things. Like, there's a, there's, a, there's a schism there between our ability and what we hope to accomplish. And so I do think it's really important for us to work on all these different levels at once, you know, we don't have to. We don't have to give them up. I mean, I said we're getting ahead of ourselves, but you're absolutely right that the people that we that we turn to, you know, if you're a Marxist, maybe you don't think Marx thought of those things, but you certainly probably think Hegel did, you know, or um, you know. So that's just one example. Or maybe you are like one of these psychoanalytic philosophers, and you like Zizek and stuff like that, or or. or um, I don't know. I, I don't exactly know where I'm going with this, but you, you basically you think Freud and Lacan are you know the the sort of go-to people that you would you would turn to. Yeah, they're certainly considering all these questions, and um, <clears throat> that goes back to why do we not ask these kinds of questions? Which is what you asked. It's like, well, because we turn things over to experts, and we still do that, and um, and it's up to us, really. I mean, we're the experts. We're all we're we're all human beings. And so if we ask ourselves a question, what am I? What do I want? How do I want the world to look? How do I want things to be formed? And how do I do that with a regard a com and a compassion for others who are asking these same questions? I mean, that's a huge task. I think that one of the most inspiring things that's happening right now are the abolitionist movements, abolitionists around prison, you know, getting rid of prisons, getting rid of the carceral punitive systems. You know, these really tie into big questions about 
not just how do we get rid of these things, but what do we replace them with? And not only how do we get rid of these things in cult- culture, these structures, but how do we get rid of them in our own lives? So in our organizing, when something happens where someone enacts a bad behavior, how do we start asking, um, well, what do we do with this person if we're not going to punish them or imprison them or banish them forever from the group, but rather accept their presence here? That's a really intense question to be faced with. And then maybe perhaps even more intense is then to also ask like, how do we see how the structures and behaviors in this group led to these kinds of problems within the group? And how do we now look at the psychology of the people who are involved and so on and so forth? Because every level Mm. of our way of dealing with things reiterates the carceral and punitive system uh, forced on us by the state. And so if they want to get rid of that, you have to get rid of it in your own life. (laughs) You have to get rid of it (laughs) on the state level. You have to get rid of it in organizations. And it really forces you to think on all those levels, on the level of yourself, on the level of humanity, on the level of, you know, your spiritual values or just your morals or whatever you want to say. And um, man, that's really intense. (laughs) It's really tough. And I think that that's the inspiring work that we all need to do. really hard and um, I think people have a lot of resistance to to those kinds of ideas um, you know myself included sometimes and uh, there are I think there are these ideas that are just so ingrained and I've talked about this before on this show but I think there is this tension for for us as sort of as people who live in the 21st century and um, speaking for myself and like, you know, come from this Christian tradition and my parents weren't like practicing Christians, but um, and, you know, their parents even weren't particularly, but we were all born into this moral universe that was defined by Christianity. Mm. And no matter how much we say, well, we're rational subjects and, you know, we don't (laughs) believe in, in, you know, like generational uh, psychology or we don't believe in Freud or any of this stuff. You're still born into a world that, shapes your whole conception of right and wrong and how to deal with right and wrong through this lens. And so this idea of when people come in and say, well, we need to question these ideas of of carceral systems and punishment, it's like there's a really deep part of you that's like, but what do we but we have to punish the bad people and we may disagree (laughs) on who the bad people are or on Uh what the punishment should be. But like fundamentally, I think you can't exist in this world and not have some germ of that in you that says bad people should be punished and there's bad people and we can identify them and then we can punish them in some way. Um, And that's, that's really hard, right? And that's, I think we run up against the edges of this idea of like, you know, we're post-enlightenment rational subjects. 
like in ways we are and in the ways we're dealing with these legacies of stuff that we can barely comprehend yeah <laughs> there's so much there i mean you know like the idea that we are like rational subjects in some ways that's in some ways that's pre freud right like where it's, Aris- it's Aristotelian to think mm. we get this kind of knowledge and then we get another kind of knowledge and that dethrones the knowledge before it, right? But what Freud pointed out was, no, we're not about knowledge. We're about desires and drives. And, um, you know, and it's not that nobody else pointed that out before Freud, but he really elaborated it in a profound way. And so, you know, I talk about that a lot with Todd McGowan, who is on my show, the psychoanalytic philosopher, and um, he he elaborates it in this book called uh, uh, "Enjoying What We Don't Have," which is a great exploration of these concepts in politics. But I think, <clears throat> you know, more to the point of <laughs> that that knee jerk thing, right? Where it's like oh, we should get rid of prisons. Yeah, but what do we do about Ted Bundy, right? Like, that's the first place we go. Right. <laughs> it's it's so weird that we do that, that we think about the exception that would blow apart the desire, you know, uh, to change um, because it's like a counter desire. It's like the desire to be safe or the desire to stop the change from happening or whatever it is, or it's the drive to stop that from happening. I think that that's why the vision is so important. That's why you start there, where you start with, okay, I'm going to imagine a world that, you know, in a positive way, that doesn't have these things, that doesn't have prisons or police or whatever. But I'm not going to just be content to say a world with no police or prisons, because that's hanging its hat on their existence. Instead, I'm going to sit down, and anybody can do this, and you can do it in 10 minutes. You could do it right now if you want to pause the show. It's like you sit down and you think, okay, I live in a community that deals with conflicts in a compassionate way. What does that look like? What are the people saying to each other? What's happening to the person who stole or who assaulted somebody um how how likely is it that those people even exist so much in this in this world that i'm imagining okay now i've imagined it all and now how would i get from here the future now (laughs) uh from the past or actually the present so how do i get to what i'm imagining happening you know um from where we're at now so you kind of roll it backwards. And I think that that's, you know, that's utopian thinking ultimately. And that's what we need. Nothing short of utopia is going to save us from dystopia. And people get very angry at utopia because they think it means the creation of a state. But utopia is a tactic. And if we think of it that way, we can really begin to change. And that's why these big questions are so important and pushing on the boundaries of our imagination, of our thoughts, our philosophies is really important. And, you know, I think uh, Kathy Weeks, the anti-work feminist who I had on the show, she says it really well in one of her books. I think it's Constituting Feminist Subjects. She says, some. she, she writes something like, um, you know, we need, we, basically, we've lived in a time of critique for so long mm. that we've stopped ourselves from living in a time of propositions. And that's what we need. We need propositions now. And that's a different, that's a different move. It doesn't mean that the critique just goes away. But activism that's only based on critique, uh, you know, it dead ends itself, ultimately. And most people aren't really capable of making propositions. And when we do make propositions, they're usually relying on somebody who died hundreds of years ago. Mm. You know, um, but what about now? What about the challenges that face us now? Who's going to elaborate? Even if we bring in, it could be Karl Marx or Rudolf Steiner or Emma Goldman or you know, or or Freud or Lacan or Derrida. It doesn't matter. Um, 
or or anybody we don't even have to go back so far i mean we could talk about james baldwin or malcolm x we could talk about um we could talk about victoria well victoria woodhull's a while ago but we talk about victoria woodhull or we could talk about margaret st james who died recently mm. but we have challenges facing us now that are new that are you know they might have remnants of old challenges or they might overlap with old old challenges but we live in a new world where new action new thought new feeling is required so we need to bring ourselves forward to those challenges and and use you know and be in contact with the dead talk to them and see what they want of us and how we can bring what they did all their hard effort to what is needed some of the the books that have excited me the most over the past you know decade or so and I don't read nearly as much of the stuff as I could but the 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 books and the ideas and the people that excite me the most are the ones that that propose something and I feel like I mean that's hard it's hard to do, right? To imagine something. Um, I also feel like a lot of this stuff has basically been the domain of science fiction for, you know, um, for the last couple of decades. But even then, I feel like we've we've so come to distrust utopia, the idea of utopia, that it, it must it always has to be hollow. It always has to have some core of distruth so we can say, see let's see it wouldn't work or see that's the price that you have to pay and it's almost like we can't let ourselves uh imagine uh imagine something you know honestly like this and um one example that i think of is the um do you know uh the the culture series uh, which I don't know. It's uh, yeah, it was by the Scottish author Ian Banks. Oh yeah, yeah. So the um, it's not hard science fiction. It's he's just having fun, and uh, but the um, the culture is this post scarcity society made up of humans and and other aliens and um and advanced like highly advanced, super intelligent AI. And most of the novels deal with the what happens when this idealistic, super advanced civilization deals with civilizations that uh, don't share its ideals, that are uh, militaristic or that are tribalistic or, or whatever. Um, and for the most part, the books aren't, like you could see that series being, oh, and this is what happens when AI takes over. It, it implements this inscrutable plan that is um, detrimental to human flourishing. From what I've seen of the books, it isn't that. It's actually, no, this is a genuinely post-scarcity socialist society that is organized by AI and people. Uh, and it's, it's actually pretty great, mm. but I've seen people talk about these books online who can't believe that it could be good, who are like, no, the humans are the pets of the, of the AI in this <laughs> civilization. There's no such thing as, it, it's not utopian at all, because we just can't, it's like we can't buy it. Mm. We, our, our belief in utopias has been so thoroughly shattered that it's it's tough for people to imagine even in science fiction that <laughs> right. something could be true truly a, a a wonderful place to live yeah even in even in fiction it's disallowed i mean i think that that's really 
that shows us this sort of challenge, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm working on a utopia project here with my friend Una Malali here in uh, Ireland. And we both recognize that the way that you have to talk about utopia to have it really, and I, I love this series that you're telling me about, I'll have to read it because it sounds like it relates to this a bit, but the way you have to talk about utopia is not as creating a state, but rather creating a process that orients people towards thinking about the world uh, in a positive way. So I think that's the great offering of utopia is that it just creates a vision, you know, um, and that you keep trying to orient your yourself towards that vision, but that vision is broad and it includes everybody. So that's the trick. <laughs> you know, how do you deal with the fact that, you know, if someone asked me what my what my idea of utopia is, I would be like, well, you know, sucking dicks and reading books. That's basically <laughs> it. You know? <laughs> so what happens to the many people who don't like sucking dicks and reading books who I just can't understand, but it's fine. But they don't like sucking dicks or or reading books. Fine. However, like what what does it mean to me then to sort of think about that these are the things that I want available to me? What is that what what's the mutuality that that would offer others? Well, pleasure, uh the you know, intellectual stimulation, um, bodily, you know, b bodily pleasure, sure. Um, interacting with people I don't know, both sexually and, <laughs> and when I read books. Um, when I read books by dead authors, connecting the living with the dead, um, thinking new things, creating new thought forms for myself, like all that kind of stuff. Well, I can understand how those would all locate themselves in other forms mm -hmm. and other actions and other activities for other people. So can I strive towards that? You know, so I'm not trying to create a state where certain things happen, but rather there's a kind of availability. And just, you know, just to say, like, when we think about our, when we think about culture, and politics and economics, we still tend to think that certain, we still tend to think hierarchically about each other um, and about how those systems go and what kinds of people they produce, even if we are calling ourselves leftists or whatever. So like, what do I mean? Well, if we look at history and we look at this sort of the greats, you know, we think of Beethoven, or maybe if we're thinking of sports, we could think of Michael Jordan, or we could think of, um, I don't know, we could think of uh, Leonardo da Vinci or something like that. What I would want is for that to be normal, not exceptional. So we create a culture, a politics, and an economics that allows people to absolutely flourish um, in that way where that kind of expression, amount of expression, mm. beauty and breadth and depth of expression becomes normal. So we are not hierarchically then just sort of placing people in genius or privilege or whatever it is, whatever gives them the ability to be exceptional. And that people would be able to be that amazing um, or normal in different ways in whatever aspect of their lives they want to flourish in. So I think that for me, I think that's part of it too, is uh, when you're saying people can't imagine it, it's like people also have trouble imagining how they would you know, in a spiritual way of speaking, live out their own karma such that they could flourish in that way, that they would give themselves permission to be that person uh, who does that much and expresses that much. And so many people have that longing, even if it's just the longing to be like the best parent in the world or, you know, have a really amazing garden um, or whatever it is. And I think 
Um, you know, when we look at ourselves, we can determine where some of our our, uh, our prejudices and fears lie just by saying, well, I would never be able to accomplish that. Mm. So can we work towards making that available um, to everybody in a, pre- in, a, in, a, in a principle of mutuality? And it's also why I love mutual aid. I love that that's happening. I love that that's reaching more and more people's consciousness. And a lot of it has to do Although I think Dean would be upset with me for locating it with him, but it, a lot of it has to do with Dean Spade, who's been on the show, who wrote the amazing book, Mutual Aid. It's just such a great handbook where we create the world together. We co-create the world that we flourish in, that we help each other out in, that we support each other in. And therefore, these necessitate the structures that we thought we needed to sustain us. Yeah, Dean is uh, an old acquaintance of mine, um, and that's really cool to hear. That uh, I don't, I haven't actually read Mutual Aid. Um, I read some of his earlier stuff, but um, yeah, that that idea of co-creating the world. I think, you know, I think the so much of common sense language so much of everyday language is very much against that idea it's very much puts down that idea the the idea that we you know we come into the world and uh we have to you know face the world face reality face the facts (laughs) and um I feel like I talk about him like every other episode, but Alan Watts has this great line where he says, you know, you didn't come into the world. You came out of it. Uh, You grew out of the world and, and you didn't come into it from some external place. Uh, You've, you've come into the world and, or sorry, you've, you've come out of the world. You've been birthed out of the world and you're going to go on changing the world. Uh, with everything you do. And like, that is very real. The world isn't like this external alien thing. Um, and I mean, in ways it is, and we can experience it that way, you know, when the world is alienating to us or when the world is hostile to us, it it's encountered that way. But at the same time, we are creating the world through our interactions, like all the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's really easy to lose sight of that, I think, when we get so hung up on on the idea of of um, resistance and of defining ourselves in that way, of like being against uh, the way things are, um, and sort of needing. Now, this gets really tricky because I don't want people to think that I am, you know talking shit on on um on the left because i'm i'm not and like i i'm not involved enough in in organizing to to be able to say that and i wouldn't um but for myself i feel sometimes that i get so hung up on the idea of resistance on the world is such a horrible place and i wish it were different um that it's easy to forget that like i i am part of the world I'm not like this external thing um, and, right. and I can change it with, through my actions and that may not be in a huge sweeping way, but it is a real change. Yeah. It's, it's so important for people to remember that they participate, <laughs> you know, it's like, I mean, after all the years of people saying, you know, you can't be neutral on a moving train and this sort of stuff, you know, the, the, the political will has just really drained out of people. And it's, I mean, we can participate. We do participate. And it's important to see that. I mean, I think the, you know, that meme where it's like the person in medieval times carrying the bag over their shoulder and they're like, I wish things were a little easier mm-hmm. in society, or I wish society was a little better. And it's like the guy popping out of the well saying, and yet you participate in society. Right. Strange, yeah. you know? 
I've actually begun to sympathize with the guy in the well more. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because I used to like, I used to like, obviously, you know, like it's a good meme for the other side, like that guy's an asshole. And yet, I think that that's part of why people don't like to think that they can participate because they don't want to admit that we are responsible for each other's suffering and we are responsible for creating the methods of suffering and the and the ways in which we harm each other. So as soon as you say, I participate, I will participate, there's a tacit, you know, or there's a there's a implicit uh, admitting that we are participating in society. And so while I think it is all it there, there's something to be said about that statement like, well look, I'm I don't I of course I live in a capitalist system, but that doesn't mean I can't critique it. Yes, you're right, but it doesn't mean you're not participating. <laughs> right. And that's really hard. I mean that's really hard for us to deal with. And I'm not saying that we're all equally to blame, but it is important for us to see uh, how we are all co-creating and 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 networked into that. And I think, you know, it's like that's something that the global crisis has been teaching us. You know, I mean the the sense of being networked in with everybody else you know the sense of okay someone could make me sick i could make somebody else sick um all that kind of stuff it is sort of teaching us how we're interwoven i mean it's kind of an end effect of globalization is like whoa even if i'm sitting at home by myself for months at a time i can't stop thinking about everybody else and um so i think that I think that some of that stuff is coming to light. It's coming to consciousness. And I, I, in fact, I do think that it's going to get more and more intense as time goes on, um, that we will start experiencing the pain that others feel and that we are responsible for. And I think that that is actually part of why people flee into communities that have strict boundaries and walls around them, mm. because they think that the ideology can be a shield that will protect them and you know it's 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 messed up that you know like here's an example is like i was hearing about this community in the midwest where a lot of people had died in the opioid epidemic which is still going on of course in the u.s and you know they built a monument to the people that had died you know and um of course, there were all Trump supporters too. <laughs> and so it was like there was real love happening in that community, but it was also a love that was contained within an ideology that wouldn't let anyone else in, mm. you know? And so we can't mistake the love we feel within our communities for love that is applicable to anybody else. And in fact, sometimes it's a distraction, which is a really horrible thing to to recognize and admit about love that you feel. Mm. And I, I think it touches on kind of the first conversation you and I had on your show before about how you and I were at odds yeah. on Twitter for a little while. Like, you know, that act of just, you know, reaching out, forgiveness, just letting it go, letting it drop, coming out from behind the ideology that sort of kept us from each other. You know, whatever that ideology was, I barely even remember at this point, but it was like, the that's the act that's needed now, is coming out into the open, away from the protective wall of community, and instead accepting the presence of everybody else. That's really hard.
And, you know, as long as we're sort of cloistered in these communities that are bound up by ideologies of various kinds, um, it's way easier to sell us shit, you know, for corporations. Mm. It's way easier to keep us in place. It's way easier to keep us, you know, um, you know, it's, it's almost a way of turning us into stone. Um, and so I think <laughs> we need to we we need to prove to ourselves that we're not stone by letting ourselves bleed by puncturing ourselves because you can't get blood from a stone you need to you need to experience vulnerability and wounding of yourself and your community um to be able to bleed out into others and to meet others it's not easy it's not easy nobody wants to do that work but um it's inevitable, I think, in some way. It's like, like I said, right now, we're experiencing so much of what others are going through, even though, like, we basically are inside all the time, you know, by ourselves. So we, we can't help but feel it. So don't we want to elaborate on that and deal with it and, and meet the other, you know? Yeah, that's. I think that's maybe a good place to to end on um, because that's <laughs> a really powerful thought, uh, a really intense. Uh, I'm gonna be thinking about that actually for the rest of the day. I think. Um, uh, thank you for for coming on uh, the show. It's always such a pleasure to talk to you. <laughs> thank you. I, can I say one more thing before please, we end? Um, please. I, I just. There are people like you and me and and others who've been like in social media for so long. And something that's been really heartening to me has been seeing how, and I'm I'm talking about myself as well, but like how we've all just become different people over time. And the trend really, the thing I really notice is that there's been a sort of opening up and a and a mm. compassion. And a refusal to fight anymore, really, you know, or at least a resistance to it or a, or, or a putting it down and like an attempt to try to understand. And, you know, I fail at it still all the time, but I've just noticed that on people that have been in that sphere. Um, I mean, I'm mostly talking about Twitter, of course, now, but I, I just, I've noticed it. And, uh, I think that that's really good news. Yeah. <laughs> that seems like really good news to me. Yeah. I, I think I've seen the same thing and I just think maybe you can't be in that space for so long without either just leaving or softening a little bit, maybe. Uh, <laughs> and I think that's happened to me. I don't, I, I really, don't want to fight um <laughs> but and when i say i don't want to fight i mean i don't want to have have fights that are meaningless and that you know if i disagree with someone on twitter i'll probably just let it go and maybe that it's selfish of me because maybe sometimes there are people who should be pushed back on um but for me i think i see enough other people doing that where <laughs> and also most of the time I don't think people need to be pushed back because no one, I don't really believe that anyone wins an argument um, most of the time because people's minds don't change that way. That isn't how you, it's one thing to say this kind of behavior is like unacceptable and like you, you, we shouldn't tolerate this kind of speech. That's fine. But getting into a fight with someone who you don't even know because they believe something that's so self-evidently wrong to you just isn't worth it most of the time. Um, and <laughs> again, I am, I'm so grateful that I think maybe there are people listening to this show who don't know, um, don't know about our, our past, but the, the short version is that we had been mutual followers. We had a lot of uh, friends in common. And at some point we had gotten into some kind of, argument i think i had gotten really <laughs> upset at you for something um and um we 
we, I think we had blocked each other. And then years later, uh, you reached out to me after having seen Sarah Shulman talk, I think, mm-hmm. and uh, basically <laughs> just reached out. And I'm, I'm so grateful that you did that because um, it means we get to have conversations like this. And uh, <laughs> it, it's a really difficult thing to do to take that step. And, um, but you were right there. I mean, that has to be part of it too. Like you were just like, you're right. Like, this is stupid, <laughs> you know? So I, I think it, it was just, uh, you know, I think, I hope people do that. I hope people do that. And, and, and also, even if the person doesn't, even if you approach and the person doesn't say, it's okay, um, that, that, that whole thing was dumb. You're relinquishing power, you know? Yeah. And wh- while that might not sound great, like who wants to relinquish power? Like it's time for us to walk away from that realm of power and do something different, you know, like let's do something different. Absolutely. So we mentioned, uh, against everyone, <laughs> uh, yeah. where can people listen to that? Yeah, against everyone with Connor Beeb. I mean, it's on every platform at, the, right. <laughs> at this point now, right. so it's it's going great. I mean, I'm just I'm so happy that that gets to be what I do. Um, I have a novel coming out, but it's not coming out till next year, so I don't even know if it's worth mentioning now. But if you are listening to this podcast episode um, at any point later in the year, <laughs> it's called Hawk Mountain, right? It's called Hawk Mountain, yeah, and it, it comes out in the U.S. and in U.K. and Ireland around the same time. Uh, I don't have the date yet because everything got screwy because right. of uh, Karoro, but, you know, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see uh, how that goes. <laughs> and just, I mean, I only have Twitter, but I really, you know, I have Patreon, and that's what funds the show, patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. I love interacting with people there. And um, I would love, I love interacting with people and I'm encouraging people to, you know, if you follow me on Twitter or whatever, like I'm encouraging people to like find other ways to sort of reach out or express or, you know, whatever, um, some kind of communication, because I think we all need to disentangle ourselves from these, these webs and not to keep going on, but like when you're talking about the fights, you know, on there. It's it's probably true that almost almost nothing that anybody can say on a tech platform is as terrible as what tech is doing to the world. Right. <laughs> so, right. do you want to throw your energy into supporting tech by fighting the content of an errant comment? You know, um, that's always something to consider. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> well. Thank you again uh, for joining me and I will see you all uh, next time. Bye. The K-Hole is a fanby.com production hosted by Merritt K and produced by Jordan Mallory. Follow Merritt on Twitter at Merritt K. Follow Jordan on Twitter at Jordan underscore Mallory. For more information on structuring and implementing your own utopia, visit podcastnet.org. 